We'd like to welcome you to our weekly Bible study and current event study for 61007. Again, if you need to contact me for any of the issues that we bring up here, I can typically email these to you or get you a link that you can research these subjects on your own. Email address is drjohnson at the letter i, the letter x, dot netcom, dot com. And that's also on the Sermons Audio website. And if you need to correspond with us by mail, it's P.O. Box 3885 North Fort Myers, Florida 33918. And it would just be to Scott Johnson. I'm going to go ahead and open us up with a little update on the Middle East situation because it's pretty much a week-to-week, actually a day-to-day thing, sometimes an hour-to-hour thing. And there was quite a few things that happened in the last week in regard to Israel, Iran, Turkey, impending nuclear war, these types of things. And there are things that aren't really being widely reported on mainstream American media. So, uh, considering this is the linchpin for the end times, which is really the Middle East and Israel. I think it's important we kind of just keep an eye on the situation. This is from um, Cutting Edge. Now, the thing is, is that although I received this information from Cutting Edge Ministries this week, the thing you have to bear in mind is many of the stories that they're citing have nothing to do with that particular ministry. They're citing other news sources uh, to confirm this information. We'll be going over a little bit of that. This first article is entitled, Israel was was as prepared for war on 6707 with Hezbollah in, in Lebanon and Syria as we thought she should have been. Israel leadership was fully prepared for war on June 7th, which was the 40th anniversary of Israel recapturing Old Jerusalem and the Temple Mount. It's ironic that they've pretty much given up the Temple Mount, you know, but I know they're going to be getting it back most likely pretty soon. Uh, this is probably why Syria's president, Assad, held off on the attack. Any initial attack, the aggressor always wants the element of surprise desperately. Obviously, since Israel was in such a high degree of readiness, Syria had no hope of surprise. Therefore, she did not attack on this day, so many people thought she would. Um, now Syria can attack at any moment on any day when Israel will not be so prepared. Uh, what happened this week is Israel actually closed. It's called the Ben Gurion International Airport on June 7th, which is something that they have predicted she would only do in case there was an impending war. This is like their most, one of the most major airports in all of Israel. They closed it in response to this. There's several news briefs. One was from uh, uh, Tel Aviv. Uh, several different news sources he cited there. I'm not going to go into all of them. I'm just going to try to kind of make this brief. But most of these are actually coming straight out of Israel to confirm this. And again, I can get you this, this information if you need to. Just email me. There's another news brief which ran in the Israel National News, which is entitled uh, the IDF, which when you hear the word IDF, it stands for Israeli Defense Force. IDF holds exercise simulating war with Syria. Evidently, there's a very big... Um, Syria seems to be the most major threat right now. They've got buildup on, on, on three different borders of Israel of different enemies that are building up military. This article goes on to say the IDF held a large-scale exercise on Tuesday simulating the invasion of Syria in the context of war 
with a hostile Arab country to Israel's north. Infantry units, tank units, and air force took part in the exercise. Uh, he goes on to say, remember two facts in any discussion as to whether Syria is going to attack Israel. Iran is really the country in the driver's seat. She was the only one, she was the one who devised the, quote, lighting many fires scenario as a best way to defeat America after her attack against Iraq. Now, what that lighting many fires thing is, it's a whole separate email that Cutting Edges run in regard to what they're trying to do is light a whole bunch of different little, it would be like going into a forest and lighting a lot of different little fires in the forest and eventually it turns into a really big deal and you have to deal with the issue. That's what they're doing. There's a lot of skirmishes and little things going on here, there, and everywhere over in the Middle East and eventually that's going to erupt into a full-scale war. Eventually there's going to be enough what we would term as critical mass that's going to flip that switch and again, God's in control. The Lord Jesus Christ is in control, but that's going to be the precipitator to war. So Syria is likely following the orders of Iran and Russia and is not acting independently. In other words, there seems a lot of these countries seem to be independent, but there's actually it's really not that at all. Iran, Russia, probably China is in there, have a lot to do with what is going on and the aggressions that they're dealing with over there. Syria has also been depending on Russian guarantees as to the degree of protection she will receive uh, from, uh, will provide Syrian forces with her scalier weaponry. Now this is the scalier weaponry that um, uh, has been talked about a lot here in recent weeks and it's a weaponry that's far superior to just about any other technology out there. And a lot of these countries are probably confident that they can go and defeat if they know Russia is backing them with this type of weaponry. If this impending attack is God's will and God's timing, it will occur when God wants to, no matter if the attack is considered dumb or suicidal or by objective or sane standards. We have already reported that the Syrian President Assad is convinced that Israel is uniquely vulnerable right now because of her fairly inept performance in the Lebanon War of 2006, because of her incompetent civilian leadership, and because the Winningrad report said the Israeli citizens were discouraged and not ready to fight. So there's a lot of... Again, we talked about this in recent weeks, that Israel is very much feigning weakness right now, but they can't beat anybody. And that would make the uh, Islamic race, you know, kind of chomping at the bit to go after them. We go a little further, and this is from World Daily Net. It's entitled, Syria is Ready for War. Uh, this is from Tel Aviv. Syria, aided by Iran, has deployed a strengthened army. Now, they're, they're basically saying, even in a lot of the, the sources we're reading, that it's kind of a foregone conclusion. Iran is behind this. Okay, Syria, aided by Iran, has deployed a strengthened army along Israel's northern border and is prepared to launch a surprise war against the Jewish state, according to senior Israeli security officials. Israeli security officials told World Daily Net Syria has prepared for a confrontation and is capable of launching an immediate war. Now this is interesting. This, is, this plays into this whole scenario. This is another part of this report and it's entitled A News Blackout Occurred Rapidly After the Initial Reports Were Posted That Turkey Had Invaded Northern Iraq. Now most of us don't even know Turkey actually started invading northern Iraq. That's significant for America because we're over in Iraq. And now you've got another country coming down and invading Iraq. Now the Kurds are in the north. Okay, they're, they're Shiites in the south, Kurds in the north. 
Sunnis in the middle, I think. I don't know. There, there's, there's three different factions in Iraq. And this article goes on to say, within hours of the original report, that Turkey had launched a significant attack across the Iraqi border, the fix was in, as the original report was removed from most mass media sites. Two rather clumsy alternate stories were substituted. Now see, this is what mass media does all the time. Sometimes they'll have what they call a news leak, a story will get out, and then what will happen is, is, is the guys upstairs will say, oh no, no, we got to yank that story. We don't want that to, to get out. We don't want, because for one reason or another, for one hidden agenda or another, and I'll show you why in this case why they would do that. And then they'll come out with either, either they'll just yank the story and put nothing up or they'll come out with some substitute, basically. But see, we're lied to every single day on a daily basis, in particularly America and other places as well. And it's just part of our life. And, and that's why you don't ever want to rely on the 6 o'clock, 7 o'clock newspapers, any mainstream media source. These sources are all heavily controlled by these, these power elite that are basically controlled by Satan. Why do you want to go to them to get your news? So, moving a little bit further, this says, first let us review the original story. This, about 1 p.m. on June 6th, Cutting Edge was alerted by one of our volunteer researchers that the Drudge Report had posted a story from Breibart News that Turkey had crossed the northern Iraqi border with 7,000 men. We read the story, then we went to Debka in intelligence file where we learned that a, the first wave of a force estimated at 50,000 Turkish troops had crossed the northern Iraqi border. This is pretty big news. Why isn't it front page? 50,000 troops crossing into Iraq where we're fighting? We then discovered a Russian news and information report. Now they've got a link here. You can click right into it. Read it for yourself which was reporting the same thing. So now we've got three witnesses. The Bible says out of the mouth of two or three witnesses a thing is established. And it's not American secular media. So I'm not saying that this couldn't also be jaded, but you've got three different sources that are unrelated saying the same thing. By late afternoon, the story had disappeared, though, from the Drudge Report, and we could not find any confirmation from any other Western mass media whatsoever that this attack had originally occurred. I see this all the time with my research. I see there's certain reports up there that are, they should be front page, they should devote the whole front section of the paper to certain things, and it's not even ever mentioned at all. It's that bad. It's just like the preaching in America. So much of the time, it's not so much what they're saying, it's what they're not saying. You know, that's the problem you run into. It's, it's the news we're not hearing. So we go further, it says... Uh, the fix was in, the story was changed just as dramatically as the story was changed in the Oklahoma City bombing, when mass media abruptly stopped talking about bombs hidden within the building and started prattling on about the rider truck with Timmy Gleavey and his fertilizer bomb that could have never sheared rebar concrete like that explosion did. They were prepositioned explosives that I believe were what they call C4 charges, and they sheared, the, they sheared rebar and... and uh, and concrete. It's the only thing that could really do it. You can't, a fertilizer bomb could not have done what happened in Oklahoma City. And please, if you have any doubts on that, email me. I'll load your boat. And, you know, it doesn't matter. 9-11, Oklahoma City, you name it. TWA, that one flight. We just, we're just lied to. Every single day, the media. And this is why I get into a lot of the current events issues to try to combat some of this deception 
there's no way I could combat it all. I'd have to have a 24-7 news outlet that was that was constantly trying to de-brainwash all of this all of this um, deception that we've been exposed to. This report goes on to say. We're just going to look here a, a little bit at the, these original stories now. And now, again, they've got links to every one of these original stories that came out. The first one was from Debka Intelligence File, and it was entitled, Another Middle East War Erupts Wednesday as 50,000 Turkish Troops Invade Northern Iraq. The official Turkey news agency, Saihan, reports the force backed by armored vehicles, combat aircraft, is targeting rebel strongholds in 11 provinces in Turkey and Iraq. Now, understand, I'm getting to a point here. I'm not just talking about this invasion for, for just to report on news. I'm getting, there's a bigger agenda here that I want to talk about a little bit. And then it says a Turkish force of 90,000 troops has been massed at the southern town of Sarank, opposite the meeting point of the Turkish, Iraqi, and Syrian borders. Now, that's, that's 90,000 troops. So they got 50,000, 90,000. Okay, that's, you know, we're getting some quite a bit of troops here. In other words, this invasion is just beginning. It's just the beginning of the Turkish operation, which might explain why the American news sources were trying to downplay this incursion as a minor event by just a few thousand troops. Additionally, uh, remember that American news sources have been tightly controlled by the Pentagon ever since the invasion of Iraq, March 20, 2007. And then one of our researchers discovered this collaborating story on the Russian and Russian news and information, giving us the confidence that the Debka file was actually correct. So now they've got a totally different, unrelated source basically saying the same things. This was from Russian News and Information Agency, same date, 6-6 of 2007. It's Turkey launches large-scale attack on Kurdish militants. Remember, the, the Kurds are in the north. So Turkey is coming from, you know, their north into the northern border of Iraq. That's how this is playing out. This is... Uh, Turkish army is conducting the largest military operation against Kurdish separatists in the southeast of the country in the past few years. Local media reported this on Wednesday. According to the Turkish Sahian News Agency, the operation involving 50,000 troops, armored vehicles, combat aircraft, is targeting Kurdish militants in 11 provinces in southeastern Turkey. Uh, observers are not ruling out the possibility that the current operation will precede a full-scale invasion in the northern Iraq. Turkish Foreign Minister Monday defended his country's right to move into the neighbor's Iraq to destroy the separatist bases. Now, they're, they're defending their rights to do this. They're not denying it, they're defending it. Okay? Why isn't this front-page news? I mean, we're there in Iraq. You'd think this would be front-page news. I mean, anytime anybody gets blown up on over Iraq, it's front-page news because they want to keep the war machine going. Oh, sis, boom, ba, rah, rah, rah. We got to get in there. We got to. We got to fight the war on terror that we, we that we stinking just about created. And please, if you have any doubts of that, email me. I'll get you the links on on that whole subject. You need to watch the movie, the documentary called Terror Storm by Alex Jones which basically shows that, that Osama bin Laden was one of our operatives, that we basically created Osama bin Laden, that the bin Ladens were friends with the Bush family, they've been friends, that, I mean, to the point where they vacationed together. And that, 
after 9-11, Osama bin Laden was actually found, was actually cited being treated in one of our naval hospitals over in the Middle East. He was over there getting treated. Was he got diabetes or something? Something like that. Yeah, he was being treated. Now, this is, what I'm telling you is not my opinion. It's all documented. If you go up to the internet and you, do, you go into uh, Google, Google uh, videos, okay? And do, just do a keyword search for terror storm. I want to try to teach people to be proactive. Many times people are emailing me and they're wanting to know this and that. They could go find this information on their own if they wanted to, okay, most of the time. And what you do is you go up on the internet and you do, you do specific keyword searches in quotes. So in this case, you'd want to go up to Google Video and you'd want to do a search in there and, and do an, uh, a search for what they call Terror Storm, T-E-R-O-R, Storm, in quotes, okay? And then you could also put Alex Jones if you want. Watch that, watch that, that's just one documentary on this subject. Just one. There's way more. But you have to understand that if it's being reported on the nightly news, question it. Because so much of the time, it's total lies. Or if it's not a total lie, it's 95% maybe at best good news and 5% leaven. Well, the Bible says a little leaven leaveneth the whole lump. So, if you're believing that 5% leaven, and that's the 5% they want you to believe, well, then they've, they've just accomplished what they wanted to do. You're deceived. So please, just learn the question. Study yourself. Study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. And you need to do that with the, with the news that we're believing as well. So we go a little bit further. And it says, Notice from this segment above that the Turkey, Turkey's foreign minister defended Turkey's right to attack into the northern Iraq so that they could destroy the Kurdish bases. The... Um, FM does not defend something which did not occur. Now, I don't know what FM stands for. Foreign minister. Okay, foreign minister, right. Yeah, the Turkish foreign minister. The foreign minister does not defend something which did not occur, but it wasn't even reported in our news. This is just, this is a good example how we're starting out this lesson this week. This is just a good example of how we're unbelievably lied to on a daily basis. Just one example out of probably millions of news stories that we've been lied to about in America. Since 50,000 troops are not considered a full invasion force, what might the number be? Debka Intelligence reported that one of their experts believed that Turkey might commit up to 250,000 troops. Since President Bush and Defense Secretary Robert Gates has bluntly warned the Turks not to interfere with the Kurds in northern Iraq. See, this is now, this is where the rubber's starting to meet the road here. America's saying, Turkey, don't, don't you come into northern Iraq. We're here. Don't you dare mess with them. Well, we've warned them. Such an incursion represented another horrible blow to America's prestige throughout the world. Obviously, a beleaguered president suffering from abysmally low ratings at home could not afford this kind of fiasco. Therefore, Western mass media generally ignored the story. See why it got ignored? Does it make sense now? Okay. While official Middle Eastern news agencies tried to spin the story into an incursion which was a very limited scope and of a duration. Let us now review one of these disinformation stories posted. Now, I'm not going to even get into these because that's all we get every day is disinformation. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to kind of touch on what was actually reported this week. Uh, this is another one from Debka. Fierce battles raged through Thursday between the Turkish army and the Kurdish PKK rebels on both sides of the Turkey-Iraqi border. 
general staff in Anakara on Thursday imposed a three-month martial law on its border region with Iraq and closed the region's airspace to civilians' flights. The announcement on the Turkey General Command's website mentioned three zones, Sirk, Sernak, where the Turkish forces began fighting the Kurdish PKK rebels are concentrated, and Hararki. It followed the outbreak of fierce battles between the Turkish and Kurdish army rebels on both sides of the Turkish-Iraqi border. So, then it says a Turkish Black Hawk was shot down over Iraq and several tanks were hit. I, you, I mean, are they just making all this up and yet we're not reporting? See, the stuff they're not reporting on is the stuff I really want to be looking at because there's got to be a reason. It's not like they're coming out and saying... They're just not reporting it whatsoever, okay? And that always makes me think, okay, what are they trying to hide? What, what is it that they're actually trying to do? And then it goes on to say, remember that Turkey is probably working in conjunction with Iran. Here we go. Now, we just talked about Syria working with Iran. We just talked about, um, actually, we've talked about in recent weeks that Iran is actually arming and in, in supporting Iraq in their fight against America, which in a way is like Iraq fighting against us, but they're doing it real subtly and indirectly. Now we've got Turkey working with Iran. Now who's behind them? Most likely Russia and China. Starting to kind of sound like the Gog, Magog thing, you know, the thing that the Bible talks about. And we, we know... Most likely, the, the most plausible scenario that the Antichrist is going to arise is through a middle, uh, World War III in the Middle East. Well, this is building toward all of that. I mean, this is like, the earmarks of this are all there. So Turkey's probably working in conjunction with Iran in the, quote, lighting many fires. Remember, we just talked about that. They're, this lighting many fires plan to defeat the Americans in Iraq. And Iran is working closely with Moscow, Russia. The, middle, the entire Middle East is threatening to blow sky high in all-out war at the same time. Former Satanist Doc Marquis told me that the Illuminati plans an unprecedented number of disasters to unfold one after another after another so that the peoples of the world will be so frightened they will give up their freedoms in exchange for security. That's what all this is about. I said all that to say that. Because it is that important. It, it, I mean, this is, how, this is why 9-11 happened. Oh, give up our freedom, sign the Patriot Act into legislation, Patriot Act 2, and all these other things. We'll, we'll, we'll give you all, even though you created it, Mr. Big Brother, you, you actually contrived and created all these disasters. I mean, 9-11 alone is just unbelievable. Why would they, why would they tell? I mean, there's so many things with 9-11 that was just so unbelievably horrific and rigged. Why would you tell your jet fighters to stand down when there's... When there's, there's big jumbo jet planes or whatever flying into buildings. Oh no, we want to... President Cheney told us to, to stand down. It was directly from the, the top brass. Stand down. We don't want to go up there and shoot any planes down. They might, you know, they might miss their target. It's just unbelievable what the American populace has bought into and believed. And again, please, if you have any questions, just email me. I have a whole email on 9-11 that I can get to you. It's not my opinion. Just documentation. This is not conspiracy theory stuff, it is documentation.
is what it is. The Bible says, come let us reason together, saith the Lord. And I think we need to be reasonable people. The Bible says, he that judgeth the matter, before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. And that's what most people do in America. They judge the matter before they hear it. Because they think they're so smart. They think they've got it all figured out. Because we're so stinking proud in America that nobody can tell us anything. And we're going to go to the TV and believe what the, the newspapers and the, and the 7 o'clock news and all these newscasters and, and the, the newspapers and the radio, we're just going to believe arbitrarily what they're going to... And we're in the end times, and Jesus said the main thing you want to guard against in the end times was be not deceived. That was the, the admonition he kept saying over and over regarding the end times. So please, understand that um, you need to rethink things if that's your, if that's your mindset. Uh, this this former Satanist Doc Marquis, who's actually I know Doc Marquis. I've actually talked to him on the phone. In fact, he sent me a whole video on um, on uh, Hitler, on uh, the occult. It was I think it was like the occult uh, earmarks of the Third Reich, the documentary. Doc Marquis told David Bay that the Illuminati plans to stage disasters one after another so that the person will hear of another disaster before his mind and heart have even fully accepted the reality of the previous disaster. See, what it is, is it's shock therapy. It's one shock after another after another. And every time you get shocked with this, your adrenal glands, which are these little glands that sit on top of your kidney, secrete adrenaline. And if you keep getting shocked over and over and over, see, this adrenaline is what helps us cope with stress. And if we keep getting shocked one after another after another after another, it's like whipping a tired horse anymore. The adrenal glands just kind of give out. And when, and when you don't have a body, a physical body, that can deal with the stress that's put before you, you just kind of start sitting back in your chair and saying, well, I can't do anything about it. I'm just going to lay down and die. I'm just not even going to bother fighting. That's exactly what they want. They want they want a bunch of sheep out there that aren't going to do anything. That, and I'm not talking about picking up guns and blowing people's heads off. I'm talking about getting on your knees before the Lord and getting it done that way. We battle not against flesh and blood, but against princes, principalities, rulers of wickedness in high places. Understand where the battle is. Understand who's behind all these military conquests and all the greed and all the corruption and all the satanicness that's going on out there. It's the devil. It's Satan. So get on your knees and do your warfare that way. Be proactive. Help people to see the light. Uh, warn others, like the Bible talks about in Ezekiel 3 and 33. Be a watchman. You know, you need to do these things. As a Christian, be salt and light in the earth. Salt is a preservative. Okay, It's also a potential irritant. And we need to be a preservative. We need to be salty so we're, we're actually preserving the environment that we live in. If you're living in a certain situation and you don't understand why you're there and there's wickedness all around you, maybe God's got you there because that's the very place He wants to have you because maybe you're the only salt out there to preserve that particular situation that you've been, been put into by the Lord. Think about it that way. So don't get so down. I get a lot of people emailing me and maybe they're depressed and this and that. Don't get depressed. Just understand you're living in the end times. It's actually a great honor to be living in the end times. This is the, this is the time that the Bible talks about that the angels wanted to look into these things. That there's a great cloud of witnesses up in heaven looking down to see you know, what's going to happen and these types of things. So don't, so don't get down about it. Just, hey, you're here. Praise God. God put you here. He must have accounted you worthy to be here. Praise God that if you're not deceived, when 99.9%, 99.999% most likely, of the population at large is totally unaware of these things, or deceived. Understand that that's a great, situ that's a great position of, 
uh, I don't want to know if the word honor is the correct word, but but it's a it's a position where God, if He's shown you these things, the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. So understand, it's a privilege. It's it's a very privileged position that you sit in, and. The last thing God wants you to do is bury your talent if you're in that position. Okay? Because remember that parable in the Bible talks about burying the talent. doesn't want you to bury the talent. Okay? Because there was a punishment to the person that buried his talent. The one that went out and doubled doubled their, um, their talents, well, they were the ones that were rewarded. And we're in the same position right now. And God will open doors different ways for different people. It's not cookie cutter. He's not going to have everybody doing exactly what I'm doing. That's why it's the body of Christ and everybody has a different function in the body of Christ. This last point I'm just going to touch on, this relates also to the Middle East. And this is um, entitled, as you can see from this map, showing the actual path of the cyclone. The cyclone's name was Gonu. The country of Oman was squarely hit. Now, this is something that probably a lot of you have never heard before, and there's a whole video done on this, I believe, by Bill Schneblin, and it's called Russia's Secret Weapon, something like that. You can get it on Cutting Edge. Uh, I think it's one of the best-selling videos ever. In fact, I think it is the best-selling video that Cutting Edge has ever sold. And this talks about scalier weaponry, this this particular uh, thing. Now, there's another, uh, it's either a book or a video, it's called Oblivion America, at the brink of scalier weaponry, and this is, this, and then it says explained and illustrated. So, there's, if you look up scalier weaponry, you could go up the cutting edge and actually do keyword search within cutting edge. A lot of, a lot of ministries have these search engines available. And you can actually, if you want to know something about a particular thing, just do a keyword search of that website, like Cutting Edge has on their search bars. You can find more out more about this. It says, let us examine by a statement by an NBC award-winning meteorologist, Scott Stevens. I, I don't, I don't ever remember. I think I've heard this, but I forgot it, and, and this is amazing. Now, this is an NBC. This is a secular <laughs> meteorologist, award-winning. Scott Stevens, who announced on October 2004 that the reason he had won all of these, quote, accuracy and forecasting awards was that he learned how to read what they call scalier signatures within clouds. This is a quote, scalier signatures. What is that? We'll find out here. Over the next few months, this trained meteorologist confirmed most of LTC Bearden's teachings on weather control by scalier wave technology. See, the scalier weaponry is a way that they can actually control weather. And if you think they can't control weather, get my DVD. I have a DVD I did on the avion flu last year. You can get it through Cutting Edge Ministries as well. Um, it's uh, avion flu... Killer of Millions, I believe is the title of it. Yeah. And you can get it, and you can go into my DVD, and uh, if you get the DVD, email me, because I have a disclaimer I want to email you in regard to that. In regard to that DVD. What's that? So anyway, I have a, I have, um, a section that I devoted in this deep... Now, it's a 150-slide PowerPoint presentation. And um, I had a whole section I devoted to weather control in this. Now, the, the section I devoted to weather control, again, is not my opinion at all. I have a whole section I devoted on 9-11 as well, if you want to see that, too. Uh, it's a good overall 
representation of what is going what is going down with the avian flu, potentially the avian flu, what happened with 9-11, how they have the ability to control weather systems, vaccinations, things of this nature. A lot of the stuff that we talk about on a daily basis, except you're actually going to have the pictures there, you're actually going to have the quotes there, you're actually going to have everything there in front of you on this DVD. So they have the ability and have had the ability to control weather since the early 70s and the government has admitted it in, in legislation that they have enacted. And I mean, I've got all the proof there on this. So just, you know, go to Cutting Edge, order the DVD or, or email me and I'll get you the link to order it. So this goes on to say, uh, Mr. Stevens' testimony concerning the creation and steering of hurricanes and cyclones. Uh, this is a now. This is this is from the original source. This was uh, entitled "Serious Question: Are Hurricanes Scalier?" This is a guest column written by Scott Stevens, NBC affiliate weatherman, Urban Survival, October 3, 2014. This is the award-winning NBC weatherman. This is him. This is his quote. Here's what he says. Now, you can't accuse this guy of really being biased because he's part of the system. I mean, as far as biased in a, in a conspiracy theory way. Okay? He says, quote, I am a meteorologist and an affiliate in the Northwest who now uses scalier weapons signatures within the clouds to better forecast to better my forecasting record. After closely watching high-resolution visible satellite imagery, there is no question in my mind that these storms were altered and guided to their final destinations. Oh, me! No doubt whatsoever. I have come to a further conclusion that the entire Earth's weather has been digitized. There is not a flood, thunderstorm, cyclone, or drought that isn't allowed to happen. Control over the global weather is complete. This way it is much easier to control. End of quote. Wow, I'm surprised this guy doesn't have a bullet in his head. Either that or it was a controlled leak that the, that the, the big brother said, okay, go ahead and say this and we'll see what the public reaction is. Because they do that too, because they want to see if there's a ton of public outcry, then they know they cannot implement any more draconian plans further. They've got to, they've got to water down things and they've got to dumb us down a little bit more before we're ready for the next level. That's how it goes. So did you catch this weatherman statement? Quote, control over global weather is complete. This way it is much easier to control hurricanes, storms within the system? Scalier scientists can create, steer, and dissipate hurricanes, cyclones, and tornadoes at will. Therefore they can and are using these storms primarily to achieve the Illuminati plan concerning their vast societal changes within mankind's industrial civilization. Now this article goes on to talk about how the cyclone um, this, this cyclone Gonu totally enveloped Oman and it was very, very, very rare for a cyclone to be in this part of the world ever. And that it totally enveloped three of our main military bases in Oman, which would be the ones we would deploy aircraft from to deal with the Turks invading northern Iraq. Remember we just talked about that? So we couldn't even get any planes off the ground the same time they were coming through. 
Russia has this technology and they could have used and steered this hurricane right in no man so we couldn't get any planes off the ground. It, it, it's that bad is why I'm trying to say. Now whether that's exactly what happened, I don't know. But I tell you what, he presents a pretty interesting case. He has a whole separate section on his website. It's called Weather Warfare Section. You can click into, you can read about this. And you know, I can hear the... Some of the people, oh, now he's really getting off in left field. Well, I'll tell you what. I just need to have some people dis disprove this stuff. And I'll recant. But, you know, I just don't rarely see this stuff being disproved. And when you have different sources from different unrelated sources confirming the same thing, and when you have the mass media ignoring it like a plague, that makes me question it right there. So let's go a little bit further here. I'm going to talk a little bit about apostate... Christianity. We're going to try to do a few different studies today. Um, going a little bit further, we're just going to talk a little bit about just some of the apostasy going on in Christianity. We have here a little story. It's entitled, A Woman Minister is Reappointed as a Man. Oh yeah. Yeah, we got this going on now. A woman who has served as a minister... At St. John's United Methodist Church in Baltimore. Now, now understand my stance on this is clearly what the Bible says, and I'll, I'll email you this too. Women are not qualified to be pastors of churches or deacons. The Bible says that the qualifications of a bishop or a deacon, and a bishop could also be considered a pastor, is that they are to be the husband of one wife. It says it over and over and over. Husband of one wife. Husband of one wife. Now, there's a lot of other qualifications, and I can get you... The, it's, it's just straight out of the Bible. It's such a foregone conclusion in the Bible that it's not even a point of debate. Show me one woman preacher in the New Testament. Oh, well, I can take you back to the book of Judges and show you Deborah, the judge. Yes, Judges, the time when every man did that was right in his own eyes. One of the most wicked times in all of Israel history. Read the chapter before Deborah got appointed in Judges. No, actually, read the two chapters. I just did this the other night. And see how wicked it was in Israel when she got appointed. I think, I think God did it just almost as a slap in the face to Israel. Not to say this woman wasn't, I guess in God's eyes, qualified, but it wasn't the, the way that I believe the perfect will of God, the way He would have liked to have set it up. Obviously, and then you, go, you look in the New Testament. There's not one instance ever. None of the apostles... Were, and I'm not saying that, that... that You know, I'm not here as a racist or, or as some kind of chauvinistic pig or whatever. I'm just talking about what the Bible says. And let God be true and every man a liar. This is why it's so also important what version you're reading. Because these other versions tend to change one or two words here or there to throw a lot of doubt on things. The, the King James Bible is very clear on this issue. And this is about a, a woman who served as a minister at St. John's United Methodist Church in Baltimore for five years, has been reappointed to the position as a man. I mean, where does it, where does it end? Where does it end? So a woman who was a preacher at United Methodist Church in Baltimore for five years, but she's been reappointed as a man. So... goes on to say, this is according to church officials, this announcement came at the Baltimore-Washington Annual Conference of the United Method... Boy, they must be proud of this. I mean, they waited until they had their big annual conference to announce this. Where the former Ann Gordon announced that 
the change to Drew Phoenix. So she changed her name from Ann Gordon to Drew Phoenix. Phoenix. What a, what a, I mean, yeah, it was, it was a sex change. This is called transgenderism. Um, this is how wicked it has become. Because there's no judgment in the churches, because there's no judgment of sin in the churches, this junk goes on. And, and it's corrupt from the head on down. Can you imagine a church body who calls themselves Christian condoning number one, a woman preacher is bad enough. But two, a woman preacher that gets a sex change into you know what it was? She probably opened up her King James Bible and she finally got convicted that women were not qualified to be preachers so she got the sex change. So she could be biblically correct. Now that's special. That's somebody that's committed to the faith. Know what I'm saying? Now, this is all tongue-in-cheek, I hope you know. I mean, you know, most of us wouldn't have that kind of moxie to get a sex change so we could be biblically correct. Unbelievable. And I, I, I like the choice of her name, Phoenix. That's, that's a nice name. You know, the Phoenix is the bird that, that uh, was, is one of the main, main symbols of the occult. It's actually one of the symbols of the Antichrist. Its symbol is that this Phoenix bird, this occult Phoenix bird, actually dies and out of its own ashes, arises out of its own ashes and is rebirthed. It has a lot to do with reincarnation and Hinduism and things of this nature. And she chose the name Drew Phoenix. Why, did, you know, why not just go with Butch? Butch Phoenix. Come on. Drew's not masculine enough. You know, what about Butch or Earl? Nikolai. Some some really manly name. No, she chose Drew Phoenix. And then she says then, and she talked of, after she had the sex change, she talked of a, a quote, spiritual transformation since the sex change procedure. Oh, yeah. Yeah, you probably just got another boatload full of demons with that sex change. How how ungodly. I mean, talk about trying to play God. Getting your own anatomy arranged around the way you want it. I can't even conceive of the level of demonic possession somebody would have to have to go through with a sex change. I mean, I mean that's going far. You're talking mutilating your own body in probably one of the most unbiblical ways you could do it and calling yourself a minister of righteousness. But the Bible says it's no marvel that if Satan can be transformed into an angel of light, it's no marvel that his ministers can be transformed into ministers of righteousness, that if it were possible, even the very elect would be deceived. So then it says, Thule, who... Who's that? Uh, let's see. Anyway, it says, Thule, whoever that is, said the decision announced by the Bishop John's school should trigger a full evaluation of the Bible's teachings. Why would there even be a question about this? I mean, are these guys ever, ever, ever in their Bible? Do they just, what do they just preach on, you know? God is love? I think that's about it. That's about where it ends. The United Methodist Church is fully... The United Methodist Church to fully address the issue of sexual identity change, he said. The decision to reappoint former Reverend Gordon when 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 she was a she 
Reverend Gordon to St. John's Church in Baltimore with, with no wider discussion in the church sets a troubling precedent. In other words, they just did it and there really wasn't a whole lot of discussion. They just did it. They, hey, they announced it at their major center. They want to they be able to come to the world and say, look, we are seeker-friendly. Look, we've even got transvestites, transsexuals. We've got people and women with sex changes in our church. We've got them, not only do we got them in our church, we've got them over the church as pastors, as reverends. The only one that's reverent is God. That title is totally unbiblical. Reverend. Show me one place in the Bible other than pertaining to the Lord Jesus Christ or Father God. It's just not even something a man should even take on himself. The Bible says, For we are all together as an unclean thing, and all of our righteousness are as filthy rags. Isaiah 64, 6. That's what we are. All of sin had come short of the glory of God. Oh, what a wretch of a man that I am. Who will deliver me from the body of this death? As Paul said, we're not reverend. Including myself. I start with me first. It, this is just unbelievable to me. But yeah, that's what's going on in the churches. One, one of the things. Here's the next article. Forced microchipping of criminals bill is sent back to the Senate for more work. Legislation now that would authorize microchip implants in people convicted of violent crimes was sent back to the committee after state house members questioned whether the proposal would violate constitutional civil liberties. The measure approved by the Senate authorizes microchip implants for persons convicted of one or more of 19 violent offenses who have to serve at least 85% of their sentence, including murder, rape, and some forms of robbery or burglary. While prohibiting the government from requiring microchip implants on anyone else, the tiny electronic microchip implants are commonly used to keep track of pets and livestock, but several House members question whether the force use in people would be unconstitutionally invasive. Well, they already they already had that that trial where they're going to where they forced microchipped those Alzheimer's patients. Oh, they're doing it for their own good in case they wander out of the nursing home into the streets. We can track them. See, this is the conditioning tool. See, we're being conditioned every single day. And this is one of the reasons why I do what I do as a watchman, because I'm trying to undo as much as possible through the work of the Lord, through the convicting power of the Holy Spirit, I'm trying to undo this conditioning through the Lord. Because there's so much deception right out. But see, now the, what they're saying now is we're going to have to start microchipping some of these prisoners. Now I know it's, it, it doesn't say they're going to do it. They, you know, it didn't quite pass the, the test. But that's how they always do these things. They'll introduce it, and then what will happen is, 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 is it's a thought. Something like this would be so offensive if you, if you thought it being done yourself. But when it's done to a criminal, or somebody with Alzheimer's, or your pet, or your livestock, well, okay, I can understand it. But see, it's the point is, is that once they get their foot in the door, once their devil gets the foot in the door, then you're, you're opened up to more and more and more things. And then it's gradually, 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 you know, they end up going the full nine yards and, and implementing everybody. But see, at that point, you've already been preconditioned to accept it. Here's another article. Now, this is from um, the Jack Chick newsletter for this month. It says, Catholics are told you can't understand the Bible. When you witness to a Roman Catholic, he will probably tell you he is a Christian and that his, quote, church is based on the Bible. However, if you encourage him to read the Bible, he may decline. 
One young Catholic lady told a soul winner, quote, If I read my Bible, I may interpret it wrong. If I have a problem, I go to my priest and follow his counsel, and then I'm okay. Show me that in the Bible. The Bible says, Thus saith the Lord, Cursed be the man that trusteth in man, and that maketh flesh his arm, and whose heart departeth from the Lord. The Bible also says that the word of God is of no private interpretation. That the Holy Spirit, the Comforter, would guide you in all the things that you need to know. But it needs to be according to Scripture. That's why it's so important what Bible you're reading. Now the Catholics have the American Standard Version, which is a corrupt Catholic Bible, derived from Catholic texts. The, the Vaticanus and the Sinaiticanus manuscripts, which were revised from, which were derived from the revised version of 1881. So, if you have an NIV or a any of these other perversions, New American Standard, American Standard Version, whatever, you have a Catholic Bible in your hands, because the the original text that that was derived from was from the corrupt Vaticanus and Sinaiticanus manuscripts that came from the Catholic Church. Those originally came from Alexandria, Egypt. So, understand that, you know, you, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? No, your, your Bible is your foundation. It's the Word of God. So then this goes on to say, in other words, the Catholic Church is based on the Bible only as interpreted by the priest. There are many parallels between the Pharisees in Jesus' day and the modern Roman Catholicism. Oh, amen to that. Jesus told the Pharisees that they had made the word of God of none effect through their tradition. That's exactly what the Catholics have done. Through the traditions of men, you've made the word of God of none effect. That's exactly what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done. This, these were the very same people that Jesus got the most infuriated with. He didn't, he didn't go crazy on the prostitutes. And, and the murderers and these types of people. He rebuked, he got more mad at the religious people that were representing themselves as ministers of righteousness, but inwardly they were ravening wolves. That's who Jesus had the most problem with. Those were the ones where, that he called vipers and serpents and white sepulchers full of dead man's bones and all these, these things. So if Jesus had that much of a problem with them, and knowing that we're in the most deceptive time the world has ever known, and knowing that man has not changed at all, and knowing that God is the same today, yesterday, and forever, don't you think that we might want to kind of take the same stance today and be on the lookout for wolves in sheep's clothing, just like in Jesus' time? Except now it's way worse. It's way worse. They didn't have TBN in Jesus' day. They didn't have the all of the periodicals and all the ways to brainwash people that they do now. They didn't have that technology. With this technology comes a tremendously higher level and higher capacity to brainwash people than they ever hoped to have back in Jesus' day. And that's just the tip of the iceberg. So, Jesus told the Pharisees these things. The Jewish leaders of Christ's day had set themselves up as the final interpreters of Scripture and developed an elaborate set of traditions. It's exactly what the Catholic Church has done. Pretty much what all the churches have done. Jesus had some very harsh words for these leaders. Roman Catholicism boasts that it also has a tradition called the Magisterium. It claims that this is the, quote, teaching office of Pope and of bishops. Catholic laymen are told they cannot personally understand the Bible well enough to, in, to correctly interpret it. They must go to the Mother Church, 
to find out what the Bible really says. Over the centuries, papal decrees... These are, these are things that come from the Pope where he says this is, this is law. And actually these papal degrees, if the truth be known, take precedence over the word of God. Papal decrees, ecumenical councils and conferences of bishops have built up a vast body of tradition that effectively redirects the people away from the basic biblical teachings. As with the Pharisees, they have made the word of God of none effect. Central to this body of tradition is the Eucharist. By declaring that it becomes the actual body, blood, and divinity of Jesus when blessed by the priest. Now this is through the doctrine of what they call transubstantiation. Where they believe the priest has the power to actually take the body and blood of Jesus Christ and create it into the wine and the Catholic communion host. They believe they actually have that power. That it's not a symbolic thing anymore. It's the actual body and blood. So what they're actually doing is, is there is is in their minds, they are re-crucifying the Son of God afresh every time they take this communion. That's what they do. And the Bible talks about that. You're, you, in, in Hebrews it says, you're crucifying the Son of God afresh. When, and and, and this, is, this is exactly what the Catholics do every time they take communion. Because they believe that they have to constantly have this atonement reapplied over and over and over again. They've got to go to confession. They've got to do the seven sacraments. They've got to have the communion in order to constantly keep their sins covered. See, when Jesus Christ died on the cross, He said it is finished. It's finished. Okay, now I'm not saying that doesn't mean you need to go back and confess your sins before the Lord. And you need to do that whenever you do sin, whenever you have conviction of sin. But it's different than what the Catholics do, where they believe they're basically working their way into heaven. Being good Catholics. Getting communion. I'm working my way to heaven. I'm doing all the stuff. I'm going to the priest and the, I'm praying to my saints. I'm praying the rosary. See, that's how they believe they're garnering their way into heaven. And the Bible says, not by works of righteousness are you saved, but through the Lord Jesus Christ, His shed blood, His death, burial, and resurrection. For you are saved by grace through faith, and that not of yourself. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That's Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. It's not of works. So they've got everything else. They've got the cart before the horse here. Works will be following as a byproduct of the Holy Spirit living inside you and the fruit of the Spirit manifesting through you. The fruit of the Spirit being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, meekness, goodness, faith, temperance, these types of things, charity. So, these are works that will be following faith. So we go a little bit further. This effectively forces this, this tradition of this... Um, Eucharist, this communion that they do, effectively forces the people to come to come to them to, quote, receive Jesus. No longer can they develop a personal relationship with Him, but they rely on their church to perform the ritual for them. See, everything relies on the church. Everything, including salvation. It got so bad, and it's gotten so bad, that the, the Catholic Church at certain different times in history have issued what they call indulgences, which is basically, you could go to them if you committed a sin, you pay them enough money... And then they give you an indulgence, which means you have indulged in this sin, and it's okay. 
it got so bad that, that they would actually issue indulgences prior to you sin. So if you knew you were going to go molest a little child, you could go to the Catholic priest at different times in history and say, listen, I'm going to go molest this little child. I can't help myself. I need to pay my. I need to pay this off beforehand. It's like, you know, the pay ahead plan, sin plan. You pay off the priest, oh, bless you, my child, or whatever. You could go and molest the child then and be, be scot-free. Unbelievable. In case the person really insists on praying to Jesus, they have a convenient stand-in. Their Virgin Mary Goddess, which is actually no different than Diana or Semiramis or Isis, these, these goddess-type figures, Ishtar. Jesus is cast as a formidable judge, best approached through his mother. That's how, see, that's how, I've even seen this picture in the Boston Catechism, or the Baltimore Catechism, this book that a lot of them get trained in, and it shows this picture of Mary, shows, I think, a picture of a person praying to Mary, and then Mary going before Jesus, and Jesus is on this throne, and he he's just looks like he's going to explode, and Mary, his mother, is there placating him. So see, this is one of the reasons they have to go through Mary, because they believe that, that through Mary they can release, reach Jesus much, much better, because Jesus is just going to wipe you out if you go to him directly. That's exactly what the devil wants you to think. He, did, he wants you to go through the, this, you know, this deity that they call Mary. But she's no different than Diana, or Hecti, or Ishtar, or Semiramis. She's just a different repackaged goddess for different times. If you want any kind of help from Jesus, this is in this article, you are more likely to get it by petitioning his mother. Whom he's very reluctant to refuse. And just to make it easier easier to reach her, you are given a convenient, vain repetition. Hail Mary, Mother of God, pray for us. Okay, now we're not supposed to pray in vain repetitions. The Bible says that clearly in Matthew 6-7. Then it says, these are true traditions two traditional pillars keeping the Roman Catholics from collapsing. The Word of God tells us that Jesus desires a personal relationship with us. All other religious religions remove His deity or obscure Him behind a cloud of ritual and unbiblical traditions. Roman Catholicism is no exception. You can see how they also have made the Word of God of none effect through their traditions. Soul winners be not deceived by their pious claims of being the true Christian church. The Pharisees claim to be true believers. But Jesus called them hypocrites who made their disciples into children of hell through their tradition. See Matthew twenty-three fifteen. Well, the Bible also says, by their fruits you shall know them. Look at their fruits. Look, are what they doing lines up with the King James Bible? No, it doesn't even remotely line up. And now while we're on the subject, I'm going to do a little study here on the Shroud of Turin which is one of the relics that Catholics revere and worship. They say it's, they say it's, the, uh, it's the actual picture of Jesus. It's his burial cloth. Okay, this is an actual picture of it. And this is, I've got this. I've got an email. I'll send you. The actual picture of the Shroud of Turin. Real, looks real impressive. Got, you know, this Jesus, to be honest with you, looks about as demonic as you could possibly look. His perfect facial impression is on this cloth. And see, the, the Catholics would refer to this as, um, see, even got even where, where one of the nails would have went. It's got like this little thing where the nail hole would have went. So it really looks authentic, you know. And, uh, yeah, you know, they've got all these relics they pray to. And again, this is idolatry. This is, this is purposely why 
none of these relics survived, I believe, is because Jesus knew we in our fleshly state would probably want to bow down and worship these things. Which we're not supposed to do. This is why, you know, it's so dangerous when you have these pictures of supposedly Jesus hanging up in your house. This long hair, hippie Jesus. Which is really unbiblical. I've done a whole study on this, this subject. Uh, you, if you go and see, um, it's entitled um, Lord Maitreya and the Ascended Masters. Please listen to that. And I'll send you the... Uh, I'll send you all of the pertinent pictures and information on that in word format. I'll just give it to you. I give most everything that I have away. Which, you know, the Bible says to whom much is given, much is required. I'm not up there trying to make money off all these different things I can sell and do this and that. I just give it away. I just give it away, you know. I know from a business standpoint that's not really uh, wise, but... The Bible says, too much is given, much is required. Freely you've received, freely give. So I just give it give it away. I want to help people. I want to help them not be deceived. Yeah, and just, um, Doug just mentioned that, you know, the, the DVD I recommended, my DVD, if you buy it through Cutting Edge, I'm not going to make a dime off it, okay? So, I'm not telling you to even buy my DVD because I would make a dime off I will not make one dime. That DVD was done through the Prophecy Club and Cutting Edge is selling it on their ministry website. And I would rather refer to Cutting Edge than the Prophecy Club because of a lot of doctrinal issues I have with them. So, I'm not making a dime off any of this. So, I, I, you can't really... One thing about it is that you can't say I have a hidden agenda from that standpoint. The Shroud of Turin... Uh, I have this article I just put out the other way. Shroud of Turin proven a fake abomination. Now, I, I have this note up here. As you read what... As I read you this, please remember that the Shroud of Turin is one piece of rectangular cloth. That's the key to the whole Shroud of Turin being a fake or being authentic. It's one of the keys, I should say. From a biblical standpoint, this is so easily debunked. But again, if you don't go by the Bible, or if you have a false version, you don't really know. The Bible confirms the well-known history of the era when Jesus Christ lived to demonstrate that the Shroud of Turin is a fake, a fraud, an imposter. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Now what we're going to do today is a little bit of rightly dividing the word of truth in the Bible. We're going to prove this biblically, that this, this has to be a fake. The King James Bible states quite clearly... That after the crucifixion, the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was wrapped with strips of linen cloth that were coated with a mixture of myrrh and aloes. Strips of linen cloth. Hmm. That were coated with a mixture of myrrh and aloes? As was the Jewish burial custom of the day. See John 19:39 through 40 here it is, John 19, 39-40 and there came also Nicodemus which at first came to Jesus by night and brought a mixture of myrrh and aloes about a hundred pound weight and they took the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes with spices wound it? hmm as the manner of the Jews is to bury end of quote, that's John 19, 39-40 now Let's look a little closer at this. Biblical usages and context. The linen clothes. 
is translated from the word orthonion. The whole phrase, linen and clothes, is translated from the word orthonion. From the Greek word. Which means, here's what orthonion means. A piece of linen, a small linen cloth, or, it has two meanings, or strips of linen cloth for swabbing the dead. That's what it means. Now, obviously, in this context, that's what it means. Strips of linen cloth for swathing the dead. In other words, swathing would be wrapped, like they talked about Jesus, you know, the swaddling clothes they wrapped him in. They wrapped him in this, okay? But these are strips of linen cloth for swathing the dead. Then we go to Luke 24, 12. It says, quote, Then Peter, then arose Peter and ran into the sepulcher, and stooping down, he beheld the linen clothes laid by themselves, and departed wondering in himself what was come to pass. Now this linen clothes is the same word orthonion, which means strips of linen cloth for swathing the dead. It's the same exact Greek word. Now, normally I don't go back, but the Greek actually confirms what we're talking about here today. We could prove this without even going back to the Greek, but it's nice when you can have some confirmation, and I mean very, very specific confirmation when we're dealing with, with strips of linen clothes that are used to swaddle the dead. Okay? You're not going to get that full context if you just look at this and say, well, linen clothes, well, that could mean linen clothes. I mean, maybe it's a suit of linen clothes. But no, there's actually a, very more, a more specific meaning here. So, then it goes on. John 19.40 says, Then took they the body of Jesus and wound it in linen clothes and with the spices as the manner of Jesus to bury. John 25 says, And stooping down and looking in, saw the linen clothes lying, yet went he not in. John 26 says, Then come a Simon Peter following him, and went into the sepulcher, and see if the linen clothes lie. Now again, the linen clothes is the word orthonion, which means strips of linen cloth for swathing the dead. Now, all these verses are in reference to the Lord Jesus Christ, and they all translate the term, quote, the linen clothes, the same way for the same word. So again, out of the mouth of two or three witnesses, a thing is established. We see the same term used, what is it, five times here? And it's all used in the same exact context. So it's, it'd be one thing if this word meant this one verse and this another, but it doesn't. And that his head... Okay, now, and then we go further and we say, and that the head of Jesus Christ was separately covered with what the King James Bible calls as a napkin. This is also important. This is a separate head covering called a napkin. In reference to Jesus Christ, in John 27, it says, quote, And the napkin that was about his head, not lying with the linen clothes. Now this is a separate piece of the burial that the Bible talks about separately. So even if you said, no, no, I don't believe the linen clothes means that, how do you explain the napkin then? It's a separate part. Because it says right here, John, John 27, and the napkin that was about his head, Jesus' head, not lined with the linen clothes, but wrapped together in a place by itself. So in other words, I think Jesus knew a long, long time ago that this, this, this debate would come up with the Shroud of Turin. So he had it in the Word of God to have this separately. It was a napkin that was wrapped together in a place by itself separately from the linen clothes. Well, how in the world... Can the Shroud of Turin, being one piece of rectangular cloth, fill that bill? 
can't happen. Just from that standpoint. It's a lie from the pit of hell. It's a total lie from the pit of hell. So then we go further. Napkin is translated from the word sodarion, which means, number one, it has two meanings. It can mean, number one, a handkerchief, or, two, a cloth for wiping perspiration from the face and for cleaning the nose, and also used for swathing the head of a corpse. Obviously, it's the second meaning. Obviously, it was part of the burial custom of the Jews, as the Bible said. Obviously, it was a separate piece of cloth. And he that was dead came... Now, here, let's go to John 11.44. You want another confirmation about this? Okay, let's go. John 11.44. And he that was dead came forth, bound hand and foot with grave clothes, and his face was bound with a napkin. Now, this is Lazarus. Jesus saith unto him, Loose him and let him go. Remember Lazarus? Well, guess what? Lazarus had the same thing. Because it was the custom bur- it was the burial custom of the Jews. He had a napkin around his face. His face was bound with a napkin. Jesus had the same thing. Um, just to clarify this a little bit. The Shroud of Turin I'm looking at right now, and I can send you this picture. It's the actual picture. They've got actually two versions of it. They've got a a picture that's more... It, it's, it's like two different ways they've, they've filmed it. But it is a totally rectangular burial cloth with the whole body of Jesus impressed supposedly it's not really Jesus but it's supposedly the whole body of Jesus and I'm talking from head to toe the burial cloth goes all the way above his head and you can almost see it looks like a a crown of thorns on his head they would have removed that when they buried him and then it goes all the way to the bottom of his feet one piece of rectangular cloth now what you would now what it would have been the reality is, is strips of linen cloth all the way up to his neck, and then a napkin wrapped around two pieces of cloth, and one of them was strips, not one big, gigantic, perfect piece of rectangular cloth. Wouldn't have been that way. Couldn't have been that way, according to the Bible. So, um, this burial preparation method was at the time of Jesus Christ, the manner of the Jews. Mentioned in the Bible, in the verses above, the Hebrew burial preparation method had no similarity with the Shroud of Turin at all. None! Not even remotely resembling what the Jews of the day would have ever done. I mean, the Jews probably look at this and laugh, knowing that even though they wouldn't want to defend Jesus... They would probably, oh, give me a break, you know, looking at this. The two burial preparation, I mean, let's say a rabbi that really knew what the customs were of the time. The two burial preparation methods are so very different as to be worlds apart, easily proving the Shroud of Turin is a fake. Within three days, this mixture of myrrh and aloes dries hard as a rock, like a shellac, producing an exceedingly stiff and solid cocoon. Well, that would be kind of tough to put on display, like the Shroud of Turin, which is this nice big flexible piece of rectangular cloth. All this burial, all this was the burial custom of the Jews at the time of Jesus Christ. There was no way a purported burial covering like the Shroud of Turin could qualify as Jesus Christ's actual burial burial clothing. The Shroud of Turin is more like a curtain or a double-length bed sheet which seems to have covered a body from front to rear, from head to toe, all in one piece without bindings, wrappings, or windings. You know, I mean, if this was in a, if this was in a, uh, a, a just righteous court, 
because most of the court systems in our country are unrighteous. I mean, this would be an open and shut case. This would be so easy to, to disprove. But no, 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 we've got to have our relics. We've got to have, you know, all these things that we revere and pray to as a Catholic. they got to have all these goodies that they can have. As the Shroud of Turin, it was never, as, as it being the Shroud of Turin, it was never saturated with a mixture of myrrh and aloes. For had it been, it would be stiff, brittle, and as inflexible as a piece of wall paneling. Instead, today's Shroud of Turin is as soft and flexible as any cloth should be. And today the Shroud is able to be folded and unfolded without breaking into pieces like a crisp saltine cracker. Sorry. Lost control there. Anyway, when presented as the actual burial cloth of Jesus Christ, the Shroud of Turin is easily, easily revealed as a fake and a fraud. One other point. Ask yourself, does the image or the visage in the picture above on the Shroud of Turin look more marred than any man? Ah, now hearken back. Now I can send you this picture. Here's another way we're going to prove this. This picture of this man, this is like this perfect image. I mean, he looks like a total devil. His face looks okay to me. Doesn't look like, I mean, if this is an impression of this guy's face, I mean, it looks like, you know, some guy that died. Doesn't look like, you know, he was beaten beyond all recognition or anything like that. Well, let's just see what the Bible says about this. Jesus Christ had been brutally beaten to the point of being unrecognizable. But the person pictured in the shot of turn above is perfectly recognizable. It does not look as if he had endured any beatings. Well, where does it say that? Isaiah 52.14 Quote, As many were astonished at thee, his visage, meaning his, his image, was so, was so marred more than any man. End of quote. Okay, let's look for some more confirmations. Isaiah 56. Now, these are a lot of the Bible verses in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus Christ and some in the New. Isaiah 56. I gave my back to the smiters and my cheeks to them that plucked off my hair. I hid not my face from shame and spitting. Sound like Jesus Christ? Yeah, it does. Isaiah 53.5 But he was wounded for our transgressions and he was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his stripes we are healed. Matthew 26.67 They did spit in his face and buffeted him, meaning they punched him, and, and who knows what else they did, and others smote him with the palms of their hands. Matthew 27.29 And when they had plaited a crown of thorns, they put him upon his head, and a reed in his right hand, and they bowed the knee before him, mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Matthew 27.30 And they spit upon him, and took the reed, and smote him on the head. Now, that's pretty heavy duty. They're smoting him on the head with a reed? That's why it says his visage was more marred than any man. And yet we've got this nice, perfect, little, wonderful image on the Shroud of Turin. Which is really, if you think about it, what we base most of these modern day pictures of Jesus Christ from. Where did those come from? Did somebody like pass down a picture throughout all the generations of Jesus Christ? I don't think so. See what I mean? How the, the Catholic stuff has permeated Christianity. It's only going to get worse. Luke 22.64 And when they had blindfolded him, this is Jesus Christ, they struck him on the face, on the face it says here. You want to get real specific with the King James Bible? We could do it. 
and asked him, saying, Prophesy, who smote thee? You couldn't even recognize Jesus Christ. There would have been, I mean, it's just, it's asinine. It's just totally asinine, the whole thing about this. Um, Let's go a little further. Let's do another little scripture study here. I got this question the other day from a man on my email. I've got getting so many questions now um, from different people really across the world about different biblical issues. And I, I do want to thank, you know, for all the kind comments I've, I've received. And I just praise the Lord. I'm not going to take credit for any of this information. I just believe the Lord showed me. And I uh, just want to help other people, you know, as I would want to be helped if I was in their situation. And I don't mean to say that as though I think I've got everything figured out, but um, if we continually humble ourselves before the Lord, I believe He'll continue to show us more and more things um, that we be not destroyed for lack of knowledge. So this is this is a uh, a um, email from one of um, dear man that's been emailing me, him and his wife, and he says one of the main arguments between my wife's dad and myself has been women preachers. I understand the scripture when it says a woman are to keep silent in the Lord's house and not to usurp authority over the man. The things my daddy-in-law comes... Now, the reason he said daddy-in-law is because the Bible says call no man father, but your heavenly father in heaven. So actually, that's very correct. I don't ever call my dad father. Ever. Call him dad. That's it. Okay? Maybe that doesn't seem reverent enough. But again, who are we as humans to be reverent about... We're not reverent. Okay? So he says, my daddy-in-law comes back with the old assembly of God, Acts 2.17-21, where Peter tells the men of Judea that their daughters would prophesy, and I have a trouble explaining this. So, so they take this one verse, not only do they go back to Deborah, which we're going to look at right now, we're going to go back and we're going to look at what Deborah did, we're going to look at what they did in Acts 2.17-21, where it says the women will prophesy. Does that mean that, the, the, where does this say that they were going to be the pastors over churches? Oh, I'm sorry, Joyce Meyer. I, I probably just stepped on your on your on your drill sergeant toes there. I mean, that woman doesn't have a submissive bone in her body. Try to cut your hair a little bit shorter too, if it's possible. Why don't you just get a crew cut? The Bible says that it's a shame for a man to have long. Does not nature therefore itself teaches teacheth us that it is a shame for a man to have long hair? The Bible says it. That's why all these long haired Jesus pictures are not biblical. But it says that the glory of a woman is her hair. It says that. We're going to prove that her hair is her actual covering when she prays. I, I mean, I, this, this is a really neat little study we're going to do right now. But then it says, Peter tells the men of Judea their daughters would prophesy. So then the assembly of God people make this leap of logic that that means evidently women can be pastors. I have had trouble explaining this to him. When does this actually take place in time? We're going to look at this specifically. When does Acts 2.17-21 take place in time? With him being an assembly of God, he believes that the events of Peter talks about in the above scriptures was given to the church at the Azusa Street Revival. Oh, isn't that special? The Azusa Street Revival. Please email me on the Azusa Street. We're not going to get into the Azusa Street Revival right now. But the Azusa Street Revival essentially was the inception, the beginning of the modern day Pentecostal movement in America. It's where it all started. And there were more demonic, evil things that went on at that meeting 
than as my grandma used to say you could shake a stick at. It was bad, okay? Now, the Bible says, if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, if your foundation was Azusa Street, and you are a practicing Pentecostal this day, you have a problem. Big problems. And then you also have a problem with all the charlatans and all the wolves in sheep's clothings that have come out of this movement. One after another, after another, after another. Now I'm really stepping on toes. Well, sorry. I'll send you the whole study on this. Please email me. Ask for the Pentecostal email. I'll send it to you. In fact, I just revised it the other day. with this updated Azusa Street information. All of it's documented, okay? It's not my opinion. Documented quotes, documented things that happen at the events, it's it's more than one, (laughs) several sources saying this. He say, he goes. This man goes on to say, I have a study of the Azusa Street Revival. I believe it was Satan's way of getting into the modern day church. I agree. There were very demonic goings on at this meeting. He also refers to Deborah. Now this is, this is the daddy-in-law he's talking about, the, the Assembly of God guy. He also refers to Deborah, the prophetess and judge, and all the other women in the Old Testament that were leaders of the Israelites. Oh boy. A couple of years ago I agreed to study via scripture and the internet the things the Assembly of God believe. I did this. I studied the scriptures they gave me. I went to the official website for the Assembly of God. I even went to the website for the Azusa Street Mission. Now this is good. This man, is he's studying, he's seeking these things out to see if they were so, like the Bereans did. He said, after I did this, after he even went to their original sources, I am now more convinced, more than ever, that all these groups that came out of the Azusa Street Revival of 1906 are nothing more than cults of Satan sent forth to deceive the very elect. Now does that now does that mean that nobody in that movement could ever no I'm not saying that they, they couldn't be I, I came out of this I believe it's possible absolutely to be saved but I think that if you get saved God's going to bring you out of it He's not going to keep you in, in perpetual deception The Bible says whom the Lord loveth he also chasteneth If you're in deception you're out of the will of God If you're really saved God is going to chasten you until you get out of that or make you so miserable you got no choice Sometimes he takes people home because of this. Because of the sin they have in their life. That's why the Bible says not to partake of communion or the Lord's Supper unworthily because it says many have fallen asleep. That means die in the Bible when it talks about that. In that context of that verse, many have fallen asleep because they partake, they partake of the Lord's Supper in an unworthy way. They're, they're in sin and they stay in the sin and they're partaking of the Lord's Supper. It's very dangerous. You can you could die. Many become sick, it says. There's a lot of people today in America that are sick because they, they, they partake of the Lord's Supper in the wrong way. Now, does that mean I think I'm up here Mr. Per- no, I'm not saying I'm Mr. Perfect, okay? But if we confess our sin, we have an advocate in heaven who can forgive us our sin, who's Jesus Christ, our heavenly advocate. The Bible says, whoever maketh intercession for the saints. He intercedes on our behalf at the throne of God, to God the Father. Praise the Lord for that. So it says then, it says, he's more convinced that this, you know, is, is of Satan. And then he goes on to say, now I am still waiting for my daddy-in-law to do the same. He expects me to study what he believes, but refuses to study what I believe. Oh, isn't that the case? Oh, whoa, we just got some rubber meat in the road right there now. That's the case with all these people, most of the time. It doesn't matter what you put in front of them. Don't, here's their motto. Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up. 
Well, wow, that's not good because the Bible says in Proverbs 18 verse um, 13, Whoso judgeth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. Whoso judgeth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. See, we have to be able to defend what we're saying from a biblical standpoint. So he goes on to say, expects me to study what he believes, but refuses to study what I believe. Because he's, he, number one, you know, there's probably a lot of reasons for that. I, I don't know what all of those reasons are. But most of the time, they just don't want the truth. I'm not, I'm not beating up on this man in particular. I'm talking about people in general that are Christians. Because this, this letter could be from anybody. So I don't mean to personally single out anyone. I've dealt with this same situation many, many, many times. He says, the truth be known, he can't study what I believe with his NASB perversion. I believe that's the New American Standard Bible. But again, the, the, the perversion that permeates that translation he's reading is affecting this man spiritually. Because if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. Well, what if the Bible that you've got is not the word of the Lord? Of the Lord? Well, then it's not settled in heaven. Well, how can you how can you study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be shamed, rightly dividing the word of truth? What if the word of truth you have is the word of error? What if it's been leavened? How can you rightly divide it? How can you cleanse your way? Wherewithal shall the young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to thy word? Psalm one nineteen verse nine. How can you cleanse your way then? Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Well. Okay, you're memorizing scripture, but you're memorizing a perverted version. Well, you're hiding this perverted version in your heart. How is that going to help you not sin against God? According to Psalm 119, verse 11. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. What if the word you're using is a perversion? And it's been leavened, and it's not the word of God. How is it going to be a light unto your path? Or if it is a light, it's like a little teeny night light, as opposed to a big flash, a big, you know, two million candle power spotlight. I'm not saying you cannot get saved out of, out of I, I, the actual version that I actually got saved out of was probably, I guess you could term an NIV. I'm not saying there's not enough gospel in there to get saved, but why do you want to take the chance, knowing the truth? If you're listening to this, you know the truth now. And if you have any doubts about the King James issue, please email me. I have a gigantic study. I will email you. I've never seen anybody be able to refute it. I'm sorry, I haven't. And it's not because I'm so smart, but other people have done the work for me. It's just obvious. It's so overwhelmingly obvious, and it's, it's really easy to prove. So I, I know I've set out a lot of challenges today in this in this study, but you know, it's it's these are things that are necessary for our benefit. And then he says, any help in this matter would be appreciated. Okay, well here's my response to this. Remember, the first thing I did is I gave him a link to the Azusa Street revival, which was just another link that I've I've um, another confirmatory link that I will email to you in regard to the Azusa Street revival. I'd like to actually do a study on this Azusa Street Revival with Scripture interjected. Because there's so many Bible verses that were coming to my mind as I was reading this. You know, the Bible says that we're to do everything in decency and in order. I, I watched this little two-minute Google video yesterday of Benny Hinn, and it was called Let Them Fall to the Ground. And it had this really, really, I mean, whoever did it, I don't know who he was, but... 
I don't know if it was whether just some, some secular guy put it up there to, to make a mockery of the church, which he had every right to, because we give him every opportunity. Because it had this really big, heavy metal, satanic rock music. In fact, if, 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 I, if I email this to you, turn, the, turn the, uh, the volume all the way down. Because you don't want to hear the music. But the, the music basically was let them fall to the ground or they'll fall. And it showed Benny Hinn waving his jacket and there were whole sections of crowds just falling on their back, falling over supposedly in the power of the Holy Spirit. This devil, all he's doing is imparting demons to him. And there was, you know, the Bible says to let everything be done with decency and in order. Okay? The Bible also says to lay hands suddenly on no man. Well, that right there alone. Even if tongues were a biblical thing in the day and time that we're living in, why are all the Pentecostal churches doing it the wrong way? Why is everybody speaking in tongues at the same time? That's totally a biblical according to Corinthians. They're not, they're not letting them speak one at a time and then letting other people interpret. It, it, it's, it's just not getting done. Even if it were biblical, and I don't believe it is, because the tongues movement began with the Azusa Street Revival. If the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Okay, and we're going to look at that a little bit more today. Now, I'm not going to get into a detailed uh, thing on the tongues. But if you if you have questions on the tongues issue, I would I would um, I'll email you a. Really, there's two little resources. They're not long reads. One of them is by a guy named Lehman Strauss. Excellent expose on this, biblical. And then another one's called the Corinthian Catastrophe. It's another little book that you can read. Um, which actually goes into, into these issues from two different men from a biblical standpoint, a little different flavor in each one. Interesting reads. So, let's go further. I, um, I, I told him, I said, this is a teaching you may want to reread. Now, I can forward you this teaching. If you want me to forward this to you on an email, I can forward this to you. But you're going to want to reread it as in order to fully comprehend all the scriptures I'm about to quote, but the biblical confirmation is simply awesome in this. Now, in regard to Acts 2, 17-21, where Peter tells the men of Judea that their daughters would prophesy, read the scriptures below in, order, in the order that I have set them in, to, to see that primarily that this will occur, this prophecy, this prophecy of Peter, that this is primarily going to occur during the tribulation. Now, we're going to prove this. We're going to prove this beyond a shadow of a doubt. Now, I'm not saying, let me just preface this, I'm not saying any of it didn't occur at Pentecost, because obviously it did. Obviously there were people speaking in different tongues, and things were happening like this, but you have to understand something, and I'm going to get into this further. The Jews, the Bible says the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after knowledge. How had God, up to that point, always dealt with the Jews? Well, through signs and wonders. Moses parting the Red Sea, the um, you know fire by night and pillar of smoke by day, you know all these things, the, the manna falling from heaven, the, all these—it's all they'd ever known. Okay, but Jesus got to a point in his ministry where he said, "A wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign, and no sign shall be given thee but under the sign of Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the whale's belly, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth." Jesus wasn't really enamored with signs. Okay? He said a wicked and adulterous generation seeketh after a sign. But I will say this, in defense of the Jews, that's all they had really ever known. Okay? Up until that point at least. 
So, I'm going on with my study here. It says, this point... The point that this portion of Acts, what talks about Acts 2.17-21, this point that this will primarily occur during the tribulation can be unquestionably proven if you look at the blood and the fire and the moon references both in Joel and in Acts. Now again, what we're going to do today is rightly divide the word of truth and see exactly where these verses are used and in what context they're used. Do a keyword search and find that this will only occur during the tribulation as all these prophecies are fulfilled in Revelation and in Revelation only. Okay, where it talks about blood and fire and the moon references. These are references in Joel and in Acts, but when are they fulfilled? They're only fulfilled in Revelation. And we're going to prove it. We're going to look at all the verses. Pentecost and the miracles that followed did not last indefinitely as verified by many early church writers. These were some things that happened in Acts for a short time, but they ceased afterward. 1 Corinthians 13.8 says, Charity never faileth, but whether there be prophecies, they shall fail. Whether there be tongues, they shall cease. Whether there be knowledge, it shall vanish away. Now you may be asking yourself, why did all the miracles and things start to cease? Well, one reason is that 1 Corinthians 1.22 says, For the Jews require a sign, and the Greeks seek after wisdom. These miracles were signs to the Jews as the Lord has always dealt with them through signs and wonders. Now, Jesus first went to the Jews. The Bible says, I, I came to my own, but my own received me not. That's what Jesus said in John 1. So Jesus first went to the Jews. But now read in Acts 18, 5 and 6. So Jesus did first go to the Jews. And he dealt with them on a level they would understand. Through signs and wonders. And th you mean, look at his ministry. Miracles and all kinds of things, you know verifying and proving he was who he said he was to the Jews. He came to his own first, but his own received him not. They, the, the darkness comprehended it not, it said. So, he went to the Jews first, but now, let's, let's look a little bit further. Let's look to Acts 18, verses 5 and 6, where it says, And when Silas and Timotheus... Timotheus were come from Macedonia, Paul was pressed in the spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus was the Christ, was Christ. And when they opposed themselves and blasphemed, he shook his raiment and he said unto them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I am clean. From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. That's what Paul said. He said, From henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles. Was that maybe a little shifting that went on there? Right there at that point? I mean, how many times can you go to a, a group of people and keep giving them the truth and they keep rejecting you when there comes a time when you're going to shake the dust off your feet and you're going to go? Doesn't mean I don't think any Jews could be saved. Doesn't mean that. Let's look at this a little further. At this point... The apostolic soul-winning emphasis primarily shifts to the Gentiles. Hey, the Jews had had their chance, amply. The Jews were the ones that told Pilate, Crucify Jesus, give us Barabbas, let his blood, meaning Jesus' blood, be upon us and our children. They said it, okay? Now, does that mean I think we should go around cursing? No, I didn't say that. 
I didn't say, does that mean I think we should turn our back on Israel? No, I did not say that. I'm talking about having balance with the Word of God here. I'm not going to go over to the John Hagee part where we should just support the Jews no matter what they do, no matter whether it's evil or not. Does that mean I think we should turn our back on them? No, I don't think that one bit. Okay? Let's have some balance here. I'm also not going to go off to the, to the extreme text Mars where he, where he basically says, you know, all Jews are the, of the synagogue of Satan and all these other things. And, and, you know, he goes off in the deep end, the opposite spectrum. Let's just have some balance here. So then we go on, it says, um, this, at this point, when, when Paul says, from henceforth I will go unto the Gentiles, in Acts 18, verse 6, at this point, the apostolic solely winning emphasis primarily shifts to the Gentiles. I'm not saying totally, because I know Peter went to the Jews. Okay, I'm not saying totally, but I'm saying that this was a shifting toward that. And I'm going to prove this. Romans 11.25 says, For I would not, brethren, that ye should be ignorant of this mystery, lest ye should be wise in your own conceits. Let blindness in part is happen to Israel until the fullness of the Gentile come in. It says it right here in Romans 11.25, which is after Acts 18, which is what we just read. It says that he doesn't want us to be ignorant of this mystery. This is a mystery. Okay? To us who are saved, this is a mystery. It says that you should not be wise in your own conceits. Why? Because it's, it's a really big tendency for most people to say, well, I'm saved and I'm better. Those Jews, look what they did to Jesus. And all. No, 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 no. We're not to boast against the, the, uh, the, um, the true branches, which were the Jews. We are wild olive branches grafted in as Gentiles, according to the Bible. We don't want to boast against the branches, the true branches. It says that, not to do it. Well, where's another analogy where it says that? John 15, where it says, Jesus said, I am the vine and you are the branches, and without me you can do nothing? There's another confirmation for you. So it says right here, it says, Romans 11.25, For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits, that blindness in part is happened to the Jew, in part, is happened to Israel, until the fullness of the Gentile come in. Right there it says that. How much? How many times do you ever hear that preached? Hardly ever. Does this mean I think I'm better than... No, it doesn't mean that. I'm just quoting scripture here. Let us rightly divide the word of truth. Blindness in part has happened to Israel. Maybe that's one reason why not too many Jews have gotten saved since Jesus came to the earth. Maybe that's one reason we've never seen mass revival break out in Israel. Yet, it's coming. Until the fullness of the Gentile come in, what would that imply? That would kind of imply that until the fullness of the Gentiles, until the fullness of the Gentiles get saved, blind the Jews are going to be blind in part. There are some Jews that get saved. That's why it says in part. Most likely, when the fullness of the Gentiles come in, it will coincide with the start of the seven-year tribulation. Most likely, okay? I believe that's the most plausible biblical scenario. And the emphasis at that point, once the tribulation starts, will start to go back to the Jews. And their eyes will start to slowly be opened. Now, they will not be opened all at once. We can prove that. Zechariah 12, 9-10. Zechariah 12, 9-10. And it shall come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. Huh. Wonder when that could be. Armageddon, maybe? 
And it will come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all nations that come against Jerusalem. When has that ever happened? When will it happen? Armageddon. And I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplications. And they shall look upon me whom they have pierced and shall mourn for him as one mourneth for his own only son and shall be in bitterness for him as one that is in bitterness for his firstborn. Can you imagine what the Jews are going to feel like when they finally realize that they crucified their Savior the first time around. Now, I'm not saying this because, again, I think I'm better and the Jews are so bad. I'm not saying this, okay? I'm just saying that it says it right here. They shall look upon me whom they have pierced. Pierced. Remember the Roman centurion putting the sword through Jesus? You know, why, why did the Roman centurion do it? Because the Jews said, give us Barabbas, crucify this Jesus Christ. And they shall mourn for him as one that mourneth for his only son. And shall be a bitterness for him as one that is a bitterness for the firstborn. I've heard, I have heard this, that there is a fairly high level percentage of people actually living in Israel right now that are actually saved. That they are actually have realized this, but they haven't had the moxie to come forth yet. They haven't had the moxie to declare publicly that this is where we stand. Okay, but I believe that day is coming. I really do. Biblically speaking, I believe it's coming. So now, see, look at all the things that are happening at the same time in this verse of Zechariah. Zechariah 12, 9 and 10. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Sounds like Armageddon. And I will pull upon the house, and at the same time, same time, or around that same time period, I will pull upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem in the spirit of grace and of supplications. Huh. That sounds like probably why they're starting to get their eyes open. The house of David, this sounds like the Jews. What is he going to do to them? He's going to pour upon them... The inhabitants, the house of David, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, oh, well, I'm a Christian and I'm, I'm, yes, the Bible says that if you, if, um, if you're Christ, then you're Abraham's seed and heirs according to the promise. But that does not mean that you are a physical Jew, who, where a lot of people say, well, I'm going to be one of the 12 tribes of Israel, I'm going to be one of the 12,000 that's sealed in the, oh, so you're a Jewish male version, and of what tribe are you from? Oh, well, that's just spiritual. That's, that's just spirit. No, it's literal. They said 12,000 from each tribe. And, and every tribe's mentioned, but the tribe of Dan, and there's another tribe inserted in there to replace them, says it clearly in Revelation, says that clearly they were going to be Jewish male versions, virgins. And they were going to go and preach the gospel and do all these things. So that he, Jesus Christ is going to pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and, supplicate, and of supplications. Well, this is one of the reasons they start, this is the main reason they start getting their eyes open. Even them getting their eyes open is from God. They can't take credit for nothing. He's the only one that can open any, any one of our eyes, if you think about it. That's why we have to always be humble before him, because even anything we think that we've done or... He's the one that puts you in a position to even be able to do it. He's the one that put breath in your lungs. So, you, you really, you can't take a whole lot of credit for nothing. 
Because really, if you boil it back, Jesus was the one that put you in the position where you could do it. Just thank God He did open your eyes. And then, and then it says, And then they shall look upon me whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for Him as one. And then it goes on to say, and then I go on to say, this verse is in direct reference to Armageddon and the Jews' realization of who Jesus Christ really is and how the emphasis will shift back to the Jews in the last days and how they, the Jews, Israel, will have the Spirit poured out upon them. Now remember, it said here, I will pour upon the inhabitants the Spirit of grace and of supplications. I said that because we're going to go back to Acts now. Hmm. So that, says, I will pour the Spirit upon them. Well, well, this verse, this is one of the verses the Assembly of God people and those type of people look to say how they condone female preachers. Of course, this verse doesn't condone female preachers. It's a big leap of logic. But it says, Acts 2, 14 and 15. Now, this is the verse this man wrote me about. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice. Now this is after Pentecost. This is after the cloven tongues of fire came upon their heads. This is after they started speaking in tongues. But these tongues were very specific. There were other people that heard them preaching the gospel in their language. Well, why would God do that? Well, number one, the Jews require a sign. The Greeks seek after knowledge. He came to the Jews first. All the apostles in the upper room were Jews. This was a Jewish thing. We could do a whole other Bible study on this. Well, what was another reason to spread the gospel? The gospel was in its infancy. Okay? This was a this was a very miraculous, impressive, spirit-filled way of spreading the gospel. I mean, you go into this thing, you see cloven tongues of fire on these guys' heads, they're speaking in different tongues, and, and you know this guy can't speak your language, yet you're hearing him speak your language. Your language, and you know he doesn't know how to speak your language. That's pretty impressive. And he's giving you a clear gospel presentation of Jesus Christ. I think that would impress me if I saw that. But see, that's what tongues was for. Primarily, that was the mechanism of tongues. It had a reason. It had a use. It wasn't just so you could go blather and blather and blather, like Dan Rather, and, and, and you know, for no reason... To make yourself feel spiritual, there was purposes and points behind it. Now, how many times do you go into Pentecostal church now, and somebody's speaking in tongues, and some guy from Nairobi pops up and say, Ah, oh, my brothers, you've just spoken in my language, and I heard a clear gospel presentation. No, actually, you know what you hear many times? You hear the brother from Nairobi come up and say, Quit cursing Jesus Christ! Quit cursing Him! In that ungodly tongue. That's what happens. Many, many times, I can't tell you how many testimonies I have heard where people speak in tongues and they have somebody say, recoiling horror, saying, why are you, why are you cursing Christ? Man. Hey man, I used to do this. I'm not judging anybody. I used to do this. Who knows what I said? God forgive me. God forgive me. We have a distinguished member here too that when she used to pray in tongues, she used to uh, call out in the name of Kali. Now Kali is the second highest Hindu deity in the Hindu pantheon. Shiva being the highest. Shiva is the, um, I believe, the father of Kali in the demonic realm. This is how this is, this is what they represent themselves. Shiva is the god of destruction. Kali is the god of death. Jack Chick has a tract about Kali. Uh, I forget what it's called. It's it's one of the ones about Hinduism. 
it's, it's an excellent track. And this, you know, Kali has like six arms and she has all these beheaded heads and plates to catch the blood. And then she's pretty nasty. She's like nine feet tall. But see, you don't know what you're saying when you're praying in tongues and you don't know what you might be doing. And I understand, yes, you don't know you're doing it. But see, the thing is, you're still responsible. The Bible says by every word, idle word, you're going to be judged. And I understand. I believe that if you go back and you repent of these things and you say you're sorry, I'm not saying that you're going to be, you know, but listen, we need to repent of these things. So this is why tongues are so dangerous. Here's another thing. Do you know that it's a well-known fact that within the tongues movement that witches love Pentecostal churches? Well, why would a witch love a Pentecostal church? Because she can go in there when they're all speaking in tongues and they can speak their tongues. Because do you realize in the occult, speaking in tongues is one of the main things they do as well? Well, where did tongues start in the modern day church movement? At the Azusa Street Revival? Be careful. Please be careful is all I'm saying. Well, I don't care because God told me to do this. And God did... Okay, well, you better be real super, super sure. You know, I mean, I'm just saying, be careful. I Personally, I would rather err on the side of safety. You know? I mean, witches love it. They'll go there and they'll be hurling out their curses and stuff and all... And everybody thinks they're real spiritual. Pentecostal churches are the easiest places in the world for witches and the occult to infiltrate. I've read this for more than one witch that have infiltrated these churches. I know the Pentecostal church I went to, there were witches in there. They would come in between services, there would be bones and ashes on the um, on the uh, pews where people were sitting. Bones and ashes. They were in there at night doing some kind of a cult ritual. Obviously it was somebody very up, or, or multiple people very high up in the church that were doing this. They tried to kill me. They did. I won't even get into that. But suffice it to say, they were they were doing sacrifices and kind of stuff to try to kill me. Not human. Of course, not that I know of. But anyway, I won't get into that today. But I, I've, I've seen a lot of stuff. Okay, I, I've seen some pretty amazing stuff. And to me, I look back at it and I praise God for God letting me go through it. Because now I can look back and say, wow, the Lord, thank God you pulled me out of all that. You know, look at where, you know, look at where I was heading. And uh, I praise the. It's really humbling to look back and see what God pulled me out of. And really, I look at it. I don't look at it like a negative thing. I look at it like, wow, you know, I went through all that stuff. It was, it was amazing. And the Lord showed me better. And now I'm able to help other people. You know, and this this is why we live our lives the way we live them. So then it says, okay, let's go back to this Acts 14 and 15. Or Acts actually 14 through 16. But Peter, standing up with the eleven, lifted up his voice and said unto them, Ye men of Judea, and ye that dwell in Jerusalem, be this known unto you, and hearken to my words, for these are not drunken as ye suppose. Now this was these were all the people speaking in tongues, okay? These are not drunken as ye suppose, seeing it is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Well, don't you think you would want to reference that portion of scripture if you were going to really try to say that this is this is uh, this is a, a a confirmation that we can have women preachers? And well, we're going to look at what Joel says. He says it right here. Peter says this is what was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Joel. 
2.28-32. What does that say? And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon the handmaidens in those days will I pour out my spirit. I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. Now that's the key. I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke. The sun shall be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. This is probably in reference to the final battle in Armageddon and the wrath and all the the vile judgments and all the trumpet judgments in in the great tribulation. Okay? I mean, I haven't lately, I don't know about you guys, but I haven't seen lately the earth and the blood and the fire and, and pillars of smoke. I haven't seen all that stuff up in the sky yet. I don't know about you, you know, maybe it's a regional thing. It's not. It's an earthly thing. Everybody's going to see it. The sun shall be turned into darkness. Haven't seen that happen lately. The blood into moon. The moon into blood. Haven't seen that happen lately. Before the great and terrible day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be delivered. For in the Mount Zion, notice I said Zion, not Sion, because Sion is actually Mount Hermon, where the tribe of Dan settled, that's a whole other study. But for in Mount Zion, in Jerusalem, because Mount Zion is in Jerusalem, shall be deliverance. And the Lord hath said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Okay, so... It says, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Now, here's where you have to really rightly divide the word of truth. Yes. He said, this is, he says, Men of Judea, ye that dwell in Jerusalem, this is Peter saying this, Be discerned of you, for hearken on the words, for these are not drunken, as ye suppose, but it is the third hour of the day. But this is that which was spoken of by the prophet Joel. Now, this was... This was basically the start of the end times, in a way, okay? Because this is after Jesus, okay? Now we're in the, we're in the home stretch. Jesus has died, death, burial, and resurrection, the whole nine yards. Okay, so, let's rightly divide the word of truth here. He says, I will pour out my spirit in Joel. He says, I will pour my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. The old men shall dream dreams, and the young men shall see visions. Okay? And upon... The servants and upon the handmaids in those days I'll pour out my spirit. Okay, now, that did happen at that time. Did it, now, number, let me ask you a question though. Did it continue to happen all throughout the ages? I don't think so. Well, yeah, it did because it started at the Azusa Street Revival. Oh, so you're telling me something as demonic as the Azusa Street Revival is where this all started up against. Got all cranked up. And you look at the fruit of what's come out of the Azusa Street Revival. All the false preachers. All the money grubbers. All the false prophets. You're telling me that's of God. Come let us reason together, saith the Lord. But hold on. There's another qualification here. And I will show wonders in the heaven and in the earth, the blood and the fire and the pillars of smoke, and the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the great and terrible day of the Lord. Well, hold on. That didn't happen when Peter stood up in Acts. Did that happen? No. But he says it in the same context. This is something that happened in part as a sign of things to come. And it was also having to do with the Jews require a sign and the Greeks seek after knowledge and the emphasis had not fully shifted over to the Gentiles at that point. It hadn't, it, blindness in part had not happened to the Jew yet. 
So you got to really look at this thing close in order to, in order to rightly divide this. Now let's go, let's go further. When is this this prophecy in Joel fulfilled, where it says, "I will show wonders in the heavens and the earth, blood and fire and pillars of smoke, sun sun turned to darkness, moon into blood." When it, when is that fulfilled? For in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Huh, Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance. Well, didn't we just read in Zechariah 12, 9 and 10, it says it will come to pass in that day that I will seek to destroy all the nations that come against Jerusalem. Well, doesn't it say here in, in Joel, for in Mount Zion and Jerusalem shall be deliverance? Huh, maybe that's tied together. I don't know of any other time since Jesus Christ came where, where there's going to be deliverance in Mount Zion. See, I love how this flows. I mean, it's 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 this is not an e. This is meat. This is serious meat we're getting into today. But it, if you really rightly divide the word of truth, it flows. And it said here in Zechariah, it said, "I will pour upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplications." Huh? I will pour upon them. Well, didn't it just say in Joel 28-32, through 32, And it shall come to pass afterward, I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. Now this was primarily said to the Jews. Joel was a book to the Jews. Okay? Young men shall see visions, and my servants and upon my handmaids in those days will I pour out my spirit. Didn't it just say in Zechariah? That I will pour upon the house of David and upon the house of David and upon the inhabitants of Jerusalem. Well, I mean, you could say, yes, well, I'm of the house of David. I'm, I'm a seed of Abraham. Okay, yes, spiritually you, you are seed of Abraham, but are you of the house of David? Are you of actually the Jewish lineage and bloodline? Are you, of, are you an inhabitant of Jerusalem? How do you make that leap of logic? You're not an inhabitant of Jerusalem. The spirit of grace and supplications, it uses the same word to pour. In both these verses. Now, let's go a little bit further. Now, and, and, let me just read the last part of that again. This is the last part of Joel. For in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, which is where Mount Zion is, in Jerusalem shall be deliverance. The emphasis is fully shifted back to the Jew at that point. As the Lord has said, and in the remnant whom the Lord shall call. Remember, the Lord always calls a remnant. Revelation 8. Well, let's, well, let's see. Well, where, where were all these, these things about, you know, the wonders in heaven and earth, fire and blood, and pillars of smoke, sun be turned to darkness, moon to blood. Where is all that? Well, okay, let's look. Where is it talked about in the Bible? Do a keyword search. The only place you're going to find this being fulfilled is in Revelation. Revelation, let's look at these verses. Revelation 8, 7 and 8. Quote, the first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood. And they were cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees was burned up. Third part of the trees was burned up and the second angel sounded and as if it were a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became blood. What? Let's go further. 
Revelation 8, 7 and 8. The first angel sounded and there followed hail and fire mingled with blood and there cast upon the earth and the third part of the trees was burnt up and all green grass was burnt up and the second angel sounded and there was a great mountain burning with fire was cast into the sea and the third part of the sea became blood. Well, that kind of sounds like what Joel talked about and I will show wonders in heaven, earth, fire, blood, pillars of smoke. I don't see that ever occurring any other place in the scripture, ever. Well, that's only one verse in Revelation. I want more. Okay, let's give you more. Revelation 8, 12. And the fourth angel sounded, and the third part of the sun was smitten, and the third part of the moon, and the third part of the stars, so as the third part of them was darkened, and the day shone not for the third part of it, and, and night likewise. So it says here, third part of the sun was smitten. And so was the third part of them darkened. In the, in, in the day shown not for the third part of it. Well, didn't it just say up in Joel that the sun shall be turned to darkness? When What other time in Scripture, prophetically speaking, in the future, did that occur? Revelation. Well, I'm not convinced yet. I want more. Okay, we'll give you more. Revelation 9.2 And he opened the bottomless pit, and there rose a smoke out of the pit, and as the smoke of a great furnace. And the sun and the air were darkened. See, there's not just one instance where the sun's going to be darkened. By reason of smoke of the pit. So the sun and air were darkened. I'm still not convinced. Okay, Revelation 6.12 And I beheld there, there when there had be opened the sixth seal, and lo, there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black, and a sackcloth of hair, and the moon became as blood. How much more do you want? The moon became his blood? This is, this, is, this is what Joel talked about. And this is the same time he said, Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy primarily, and the old men shall dream dreams, and the young men shall see visions, and also upon the servants, upon the handmaids, in those days will I pour up my spirit. Yes, it happened in part, right after Pentecost. For a time. After, and, and, then, and then what ended up happening is the emphasis started shifting off the Jews and onto the Gentiles. The Jews require a sign, but the Greeks seek after knowledge, is what the Bible says. So, this is what we're dealing with here, okay? Now, let's read Acts 2, 17-21 again. No, no, let's, let's read it now. Now, let's read Acts 17-21. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God. Now, this is Peter saying this right after Pentecost and it shall come to pass in the last days so, so what we would be saying is that when Pentecost started was essentially the start of the last days but it wasn't the end of the last days it was the start of it okay shall come to pass in the last days saith God I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh now this is Acts Acts 2 17-21 I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh and upon your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and the young men shall see visions and the old men shall dream dreams, and, my, and upon my servants, and my handmaidens, I will pour out in those days of my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And, then it says, and I will, this is like in conjunction, and I will show wonders in the heaven above, and in the signs of the earth, beneath blood, and fire, and vapors of smoke, the sun and the... The sun shall be turned into darkness, and the moon into blood, before the great and notable day of the Lord come. And it shall come to pass, that whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right there as a Pentecostal, you have a gigantic problem. Because it says, and. 
in the King James Bible. It says, yes, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams and the servants and the handmaids. But hold on. And it says, and I will show wonders in heaven above and the signs in the earth and blood and fire and vapor. That didn't happen back then. It's only going to happen during Revelation. In the verses that I just read. So within the full context of these verses, these events will occur during Revelation as we have proven by citing these scriptures. Now, let's shift gears. As far as Judges goes, when, it, when, when you have the Assembly of God people bringing up Deborah, well, let's look at that. In the text related to Deborah and Jael, now Jael was the one that, that I believe put the tent stake through, through that guy's head. We're going to look at that real quick. The text relating to Deborah and Jael, which were two of the women mentioned in Judges that did the God's bidding. And I'm not saying they were out of God's will. I'm just saying it's not traditionally the perfect way God would have done things is to have to use women to do a man's work. The, the men were so stinking sorry he had to use women. That's what it boiled down to. Do you think about it? I mean, just read Judges 1 and 2 to see how sorry the men had become. They were wicked. The text relating to Deborah and Jael contains four main sections. Deborah, number one, is a judge of Israel, summoned Barak. Now this is in Judges, I'm not going to go into all these verses, but it's in Judges 4, 1 through 11, and Judges 5, 1 through 18. Deborah, a judge of Israel, summoned Barak when the war and the oppression came. Deborah acted as a leader of the people. She chose the most able military general and told him what he must do. Number two, the battle was fought. Caesarea fled. Now, this is a, this is in regard to Deborah and Jael. These are in regard to these two women. Now, these are these are the verses that will many times say, "Oh, there should be women preachers." Well, I'm sorry, I don't see it in here. This battle was fought. Caesarea fled. And now, this if you want the scripture verses on that, it was Judges four twelve through sixteen and Judges five nineteen through twenty three. The superior enemy forces were routed. Their troops were slaughtered, and the Israelites were jubilant. Their faith in God was strengthened. Caesarea, the enemy general, fled from the battlefield toward the encampment of Jael, the Canaanite woman. Let's go further. Jael met Caesarea and killed him. Now this is in Judges 4, 17-24 and Judges 5, 24-27. Jael called Caesarea into her tent, hid him and fed him. Didn't she give him warm milk? Probably made him go to sleep, I think. She fell asleep. Jael killed him by driving a tent peg through the side of his head, I believe, into his temple. She was then hailed as a national hero by pursuing, by pursuing the Israelite forces led by Deborah and Barak. Okay, those are two women that God did use mightily, and I'm not going to dispute that or doubt that. He used Hannah, he used Ruth, all these great women. Praise the Lord. But everything has its place. Okay? And this is, this is where we get all out of whack here. And then the mother of Caesarea, Caesarea's mother, and the noble woman who surrounded her, waited for her son to return, but he was already dead by Jael's hand. So this is... This is this is a synopsis of how these women were used in Judges. Okay? I don't see anywhere where Deborah and Jael were going around appointed as prophets and men of God and, and, and appointed to the, Levitic, the Levitical priesthood or anything like that, though. I don't see any of that. I don't see any women priests as Levites ever in the Old Testament. Ever! So, so how could you show me? Oh, I see temple prostitutes. That's, that's how primarily the women were used in pagan cultures. In, in the church setting, I'm, I'm, I hate to say it, but I'm talking from a pagan standpoint. That's how, that was the highest calling for a woman. In a pagan setting was to be a temple prostitute. Or a high priestess or whatever, like a witch would be. 
Now, in the time of Judges 21 through 25, it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. You've heard that verse many times. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. This was a rebellious, wicked time. Just read Judges 2 and 3 to understand the unbelievable rebellion that the Jews were in towards the Lord. In chapter 4, the Lord permits Deborah to judge Israel. The Lord had to actually use these women to accomplish this as to accomplish his will as the Lord could not find a suitable king or a man to do it for that matter because the men were so sorry it was an indictment against the men why he had to use these women God wouldn't have in his perfect will called this woman to, 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 to do this if he could have found a suitable man to do it but he couldn't find any of them it was an indictment against the men of Israel the Lord used these women and I praise God for that but that was not the ideal way the Lord had traditionally chose to deal with his enemies before or after Remember, we've got to rightly divide the word of truth. Show me all the scriptural precedent. Now, I can understand if, God, if, if, if Israel was in God's perfect will. And Israel was pleased, and God was pleased in his ways. And then God said, I appoint this woman over you. Then I couldn't argue. Then I would have to say, you know, hey, but this was the exact polar opposite of that environment. <coughs> okay, well, let's read this other verse. Doug just brought this up. Uh... Let's just start in a verse. That, uh, this is a confirmatory verse about this whole thing with, with, with the women. It says in Isaiah 3, verses, verse 12, it says, as, um, well, let's just say, sorry, verse 11. Woe unto the wicked, it shall be ill with him, for the reward of his hand shall be given to him. As for my people, now this is in reference to the Jews, children are their oppressors, and women rule over them. That doesn't sound like that's something we should desire to be. The Bible says that the man is supposed to be head of the woman. Here's another thing to think about. If, if like Joyce Myers, her head is supposed to be her, her browbeat husband, her spineless browbeat husband, how can he be head over her and for her to be his preacher? How can he be head over her and for her to be head over all these other women and men? It doesn't make biblical sense whatsoever. I mean, this is this is an indictment against against Jerusalem. It says, as for my people, children are their oppressors, probably because they were letting their children grow up any way they want to, just like they are now. Trusting the doctor Spock. Oh, don't don't spank them. Don't do this. Don't do that. You know, just let them grow up to be little devils. Well, that's what will happen. The children will start to rule over you, and the woman will rule over you. Oh, my people, they which lead thee cause thee to err. Oh, isn't that an indictment of the church? The churches are leading us. Oh, the churches are telling us to do this. But it says, they which lead thee cause thee to err and destroy the way of thy paths. See, they're not seeking the old path wherein is wisdom. They're going on the path they want to go on. The Lord standeth up to plead and, and standeth to judge the people. So, see, that is another great confirmatory verse there. So going back to this, we, we just, we're going to end here, and it says, um, the Lord used these women, and I praise God for that, but that was not the ideal way the Lord had traditionally chose to deal with His enemies before or after. In other words, the men of this time really dropped the ball. And that's an understatement. What many do is to claim some pet doctrine without comparing scripture to scripture to get the big picture. This is how all cults get started. This is what the assemblies of God and the Pentecostals are notorious for doing. I hate to say it. Hey, I think I have a right to render an opinion on this considering I came out of this. 
This is the basis for most cults that form and, and that still claim to use the Bible as their foundation. Well, isn't that what the Mormons do? Well, yeah, that's, they, they use, they, in fact, they even use the King James Bible. You know, Jehovah's Witnesses claim to use the Bible, and then they got the New World Translation. That's, that's perversion. But see, the Mormons also have the Pearl of Great Price and the Book of Mormon which actually take precedence over the Bible. Well, they have to. Because if the Bible took precedence over them, it would clearly show them to be frauds. Mark 7.13 says, Making the word of God of none effect through your tradition. We already read that. 2 Timothy 2.15 Study to show thyself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Regarding the people of Berea, they said in Acts 17.11 and 12, it says, these, these were more noble than those in Thessalonica, in that they received the word with all readiness of mind, and searched the scriptures daily, whether those things were so. Therefore many of them believed. See, when you search the things daily, and you have a readiness of mind, to see if these things are so, many will believe. This is why it's so important to be grounded in the Word of God. Because that's how people end up believing. As far as the, as your father-in-law goes, now this is, I'm still, this is a letter I wrote to this man, as far as your father-in-law goes, if he refuses to look at what you've set in front of him, quote Proverbs 18, verse 13, which is what we already talked about, he that answereth the matter before he heareth it, it is a folly and a shame unto him. So see, this is, you just, I'm sorry, but what you try, what I try to do when I get into to scriptural things is give them scripture. You want to you argue about doctrinal issues? Well, I'm going to load your boat with scripture, with the Bible. And if you can prove me wrong, fine. But so many times, all I get is opinion. There is a way which seemeth right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Proverbs 16, 14. Or 14.12 and probably 16.25. So we, uh, you know, we, we've got to get away from this thing where we're, where we're trusting in our opinions. You're trusting in your own heart. And the Bible says, He who so trusteth in his own heart is a fool. Proverbs 28.26. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9. So we cannot be trusting our heart. We have to trust the Word of God and be grounded in the Word of God. Period. King James Bible... And, and that's what we need to put our faith in. So I'll go ahead and close this out in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this time that you've given us, Lord. I just pray you bless this study. I pray, God, that the words of our mouth and the meditations of our heart would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, and that you would forgive us for any and all sins that we've committed in any way, shape, or form, that there would be nothing that would hinder our relationship with you, our walk with you, that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to receive, and ears to hear. I pray, Lord God, that we remember to put the full armor of God on every day, that you would, Lord God, fight against those that fight against us, Lord God, that ultimately I pray you'd save our enemies if it be possible. But I also know, Lord God, that you said narrow is the way which leadeth unto life eternal, and few there be that find it. And I do pray, God, that you would over overthrow the wicked, Lord, that all men would see and fear and declare the work of God, that they would wisely consider of your doing, not because I want them to go to hell, Lord, but because I want all men to see and fear and declare the work of God. Like when Ananias and Sapphira were struck dead, Lord. Many were saved. Many were converted. And great fear fell upon the camp. I know, God, you said in your word that you take no pleasure in the death of the wicked. And I just pray, Lord God, that you save those that can be saved. For what's your will that not one would perish, but that all would come to repentance. I pray, God, you, you bless the sermon. Wherever your word is being preached worldwide, Lord that you would bring us back at the next appointed time according to your will, and that you, Lord God, set us as salt and light 
in the darkness that we're in the midst of and that you clearly show us a path for each one of the people listening to this message of what you would have them do in their respective situation, Lord. We love you, Lord God. We thank you for all these things. In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen.